session with Dr. Farid Kolaku. Afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Joining me today for the show, I'm very excited to have the author of the book Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, Dr. Joy DeGru, who I'll introduce to you shortly. Uh, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome was the book of the week from last week, and I've very, uh, very happy to get to have her on the show, the author of the book, to discuss the book uh, and related issues as well. So let me tell you a bit about Dr. DeGru. Dr. Joy Angela DeGru holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Communication, a Master's degree in Social Work, a Master's degree in Clinical Psychology, and a PhD in Social Work Research. Dr. DeGru is a nationally and internationally renowned researcher and educator. For over two decades, she served as an assistant professor at Portland State University School of Social Work and now serves as president and chief executive officer of Dr. Joy DeGru Publications, Inc. Dr. DeGru's research focuses on the intersection of racism, trauma, violence, and American chattel slavery. She has over 30 years of practical, practical experience as a professional in the field of social work. She conducts workshops and trainings in the areas of intergenerational historical trauma, mental health, social justice, improvement strategies, and evidence-based model development. Dr. DeGru has published numerous refer refereed journal articles and authored her seminal book that we'll talk about today, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, America's Legacy of Enduring Injury and Healing. She has developed the African-American Male Adolescent Respect Scale, an assessment instrument designed to broaden our understanding of the challenges facing these youth in an effort to prevent their representation in the criminal justice system. Dr. DeGruy, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure. And also, I should say thank you to your uh, nephew, Jamal, who uh, made it possible for me to connect with you. So thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your book, which uh, I read and, and thoroughly enjoyed. Um, of course, when I say enjoyed, also at times, you know, you get saddened by some of the things that you do read in your book, because that's the reality uh, of America and uh, American history and what has happened in this country. But your book, of course, outlines what has happened, but also has hope for for the future. But I will let you share um, post-traumatic slave syndrome, which is this concept or syndrome that you have developed based on your research and experience and, and study. Um, maybe you could share with us what that entails. I know that's a big question, but maybe we can start there. <laughs> um, well, uh, again, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's looking at intergenerational trauma, um, which is an area of, of study and research that's not new. It's been, you know, we've been looking at, um, multiple, multiple generations of folks that have experienced trauma. We've looked at victims of, for example, natural disaster. We've looked at, uh, victims of human disasters like what happened uh, with Jewish Holocaust and what mm -hmm. happened in Rwanda and, you know, various uh, spaces where human beings have behaved really horribly and committed genocide uh, against folks like here, indigenous people um, in America. Well, I looked at the impact of American chattel slavery, which, of course, uh, 
lasted over 300 years. So I, you know, I, I made it my my work, my focus to really do a deep dive and to understand what are the implications of, you know, f- of an injury that happens as a result of that uh, long-term and enduring trauma. Uh, and of course, it, this is coupled with phenomenal uh, resilience, clearly, uh, phenomenal uh, skill and agency. Um, however, you know, it, it did and continues to leave an incredible stain um, on this country and upon the hearts and souls of, of people of color in general and African-Americans specifically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it's, of course, how could we not expect what has been the experience of African-Americans here in, in the United States not to leave an impact in a variety of ways, which you outline in the book, some of those aspects of the syndrome which we might be able to uh, dive into. And of course, the healing sure. and the reconciliation hasn't happened. And I think near the end of today's uh, uh, conversation, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on what you think of as the what could be that process of healing, reconciliation. Absolutely. And of course, that brings up the word reparations as well, which um, enters the conversation when we talk about these things. Um, you know, looking at <laughs> post traumatic slave syndrome, I know you outline in the book quite well different aspects of it. And there's three categories that you present um, here about vacant esteem, ever-present anger, and racist socialization. Um, maybe we can outline some of those a bit. So vacant esteem, what what is that and how would you describe or define that? Hello? Sorry, oh, that's accidentally, a... mute. Uh, accidentally <laughs> muted you. That, oh, that's, that's, um, that's the, in the Zoom world where that, ha- that happens a lot these days. <laughs> exactly. Um, so what, what I think, uh, when I look at vacant esteem, it's not your uh, garden variety low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, when I was doing my research and I was looking at 200 African-American males ages 14 to roughly 20, uh, 100 of whom were incarcerated, 100 that were not, I was looking at this this whole idea of vacant esteem, but I didn't mean low self-esteem. And since mm-hmm. nothing had been written in the literature that really spoke to what I was talking about when I said vacant esteem, of course, what I had to use were the, uh, the existing um, scales, which were not appropriate. But anyway, when I say vacant esteem, I'm not talking about, oh my gosh, my I feel I feel bad because my brother can do more chin-ups than I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's you know that's your garden variety stuff. I'm talking about uh, having been assaulted with your reality. In other words, having generations of people, not just anybody, but institutions, schools, medicine, law, you know, media, all of them saying to you that you are not fully human. The, the dehumanizing piece of what has happened to African-American people, where you are consistently being sent messages that you are not worthy, you're not whole. I mean, you know, the Constitution, mm-hmm. three-fifths human, you know, the, 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 the three-fifths compromise. All of these things over generations. And I, of course, illustrate that up to 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, they put an African-American man, uh, you know, from, from the Congo in the Bronx Zoo in 1906 as an exhibit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, these are what, what I'm trying to, to, to share here is what happens when you are consistently given these messages that you're not okay. Mm-hmm. It results in vacant esteem. 
And I mean that primary sense of self that fundamentally says that I am equal, on par, normal, healthy human being like everyone else. Mm -hmm. What does that do when one begins to internalize this? Now, the good news about that is the answer to the this vacant esteem is something called racial socialization. <laughs> racial, mm-hmm. deliberately Im- imparting to uh, people of color in general, African-Americans specifically, of the beauty, grace, normalcy of their blackness, right? Mm-hmm. But that vacant esteem shows up in places where folks say things like, my gosh, she was sure pretty even though she was dark. Now, this is what this is an intracultural phenomenon. This is something that black people were saying. When I was a kid, they would call you, you know, a name, but they call you black first. You black, and then fill in the blank. You mm-hmm. black. And again, as a child, this was strug- I struggle with that because I'm going, y'all are black. Mm-hmm. But the assumption here is that when I call you black, I'm somehow going to add to the insult and the injury. And so that vacant esteem piece deals with that stuff. It deals with the impact of racist socialization. It, it is the impact of racist socialization. And again, um, we know that we've been able to combat this and overcome this in large in a large way, but in some ways uh, those injuries remain and those mm-hmm. behaviors and uh, self-denigrating kind of perceptions continue. Right. Yeah. You know, mentioned that there's that very powerful concept, dehumanization and any genocide, you know, the things that you discussed earlier, it's part and parcel that there's dehumanization of this group that is being treated exactly. in that way to justify, to, right. to say that it's okay uh, what we're doing. And if you look at the, um, you know, the people who are promoting or supporting slavery and the way they talked about why it made it okay, even doing a favor. I mean, it's 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 laughable, but sad to, to see that it was, uh, you know, one of the arguments was it was actually helping the people who are enslaved because uh, they, they liked it or they enjoyed it or was giving them some kind no, of benefit. Of course, yeah, of course. And, and so... You have to remove any conscience with it. Of course, I can't feel like I've done something wrong. Yeah, and what I always think is interesting when I read these types of writings of people supporting these things, and I try to keep that in mind even in the present day, is that sometimes the most immoral and horrible actions and ideas of human beings have been written in very intellectual and what would be the language intelligent ways um, by who was considered smart at that time, but they were morally bankrupt and uh, so biased in their thinking. And we have to be aware of that even in present day that sometimes people who might put things in very beautiful language as far as the types of words they choose are promoting the ugliest ideas imaginable. And so we see that when we uh, look at slavery, and it of course doesn't just end, and you outlined that history very well in the book, that it's not that, oh, 1865, everything is okay now, because, uh, you know, it's in the Constitution that no longer there's slavery, that those injuries continue, and of course do continue to the present day, as you um, outline in the book. And of course, that dehumanization being so unfortunately accepted in the American culture, so to speak, um, of course, is going to sure. impact the, everyone involved. And as you said, to overcome that, um, you talk about how you kind of have to know what you've been through to know where you want to go. Um, exactly. And that, that, that is and very to important. Understand, it's even more important to understand that, you know, this did not, you know, I, I had, I wrote a piece recently. It's called Who's Under the Sheets Now. Hmm. Um, and it's about 
uh, white supremacy, and it's talking about the fact that, you know, we, when you think, you hear or you hear the word white supremacy, I think this has changed in recent times. But people would imagine this kind of horrible, you know, hood-wearing, toothless wonder that's roaming about, you know. But no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Who's under the sheets now um, wear judges' robes? Mm-hmm. They wear police, police uniforms. They're teachers. They're doctors. And you see it followed not just, you know, these aren't just individuals. These are institutions. Because you have to remember, in order for slavery to have existed as long as it did, everyone had to be complicit. Right. Every major discipline had to sign off. Oh, yeah, this is okay. These people should be treated this way. They deserve this. To calm the consciences, to remove the cognitive dissonance that one would feel upon oppressing or subjugating an entire group of people. Right. So you have to realize that every major institution in America, this is why the work is important, because people go, oh, it's just those police officers. Oh, it's just those folks that were at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you see, it, it, in, it had to infiltrate and had to be a part of every institution. And this is why it's so difficult to eradicate. Because it is almost, you know, stamped into the DNA as it relates to folks have become so comfortable with, so normalized by this idea of superiority and inferiority that it is pervasive. And so when we look at it, we have to look at the whole thing, right? Mm. So we look at repair, for example, right? Um, When you're going to repair something, sometimes... Uh, just, just look at it from this kind of symbolic way. And I'm a person that, that, that does a lot of repair. I like putting things together and fixing things. And um, if, if I were to look at something that, I'm, that needs to repair, sometimes you just need to shore it up. You need to clean it up. Maybe there's some corrosion. Maybe you can, you know, give some support to an existing structure, and it'll be okay. Other times it's, oh, this, only this part has to go. Right. And then other times, the entire structure has mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. because it's it's rotten from the root. Are you following me? Yep. So it becomes a situation where it's not a simple remedy. And saying you're sorry isn't enough, taking down statues, and although that's important, changing names on sports teams and, you know, and Jemima, that's all great. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's great. It's important. But it doesn't get to the root. Right. And it doesn't change a system. Like people say to me, Joy, how can we how can we um, fix the this system of law enforcement? I said, we can't. It's not broken. It's not broken. Mm-hmm. Policing does exactly what it's designed to do. Mm-hmm. The problem is we've never realized that it's always been designed to do what it does. Right. And if you understood the history of policing and slave patrols, then you understand why, in fact, uh, black people are hunted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is what the institution was born from. And so, again, our ignorance about the historical context that places us where we are uh, is why it's so hard to, to get to. Because people can't believe it. We have, we, none of us were educated in this way. Mm-hmm. I have four degrees. You named them. Three advanced degrees. None of it taught me what you read in that book. Yep. None you, of it taught me that. I, I went to school in this country from kindergarten uh, all the way through 12th grade. And in history, the way that things like slavery were talked about is so passive and uh, I haven't learned and I still have so much to learn but until much after in my own research looking into what American history was really like you don't you don't get that you get that sanitized view and we have to go into commercial break but even actually uh, when you mentioned that I I think you did it really was interesting when you talked about visiting the Statue of Liberty and that experience there that even the history of the Statue of Liberty which is one of the most iconic American symbols that we have uh, we really don't 
know the whole story or some very important <laughs> exactly. parts of it are not talked about. Maybe we can start with that after the break, but also a lot more to sure. explore. Again, my guest today is Dr. Joy DeGruy, author of Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. We'll be right back. Again, joining me on the show today is Dr. Joy DeGruy. We are discussing her book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And before the break, Dr. DeGruy, I was uh, mentioning your story sharing, uh, going to the uh, sorry, the Statue of Liberty and your experience there. And I want to get into that a bit because I think what's important going back to this issue of healing, we, of course, um, want to talk about that aspect as well. Uh, but really, to, to heal something, you have to know the problem the situation you're dealing with as you mentioned sometimes you have to shore things I'm up a little trouble hearing you oh Are i'm you, sorry is it audio is oh just... sorry can you hear me now yeah okay good uh but i was mentioning that you know before the break you shared about um fixing something and sometimes you have to shore it up you have to sometimes take off a piece sometimes you have to build it from the root but until uh we can fix a problem until we know the problem and really understand it and so that's part of Something you hear a lot these days, okay, we've talked about slavery or it happened in the past and people don't want to face it. But <laughs> until we understand what happened, I don't think, of course, we'll be able to fix any problem, including something as, as big as uh, the wounds that have happened as part of American history. So, uh, you know, when you went to the Statue of Liberty, I thought it was interesting you shared about the, the chains that are at Lady Liberty's feet, which are hard to see, actually, Um unless you have specific angles and even you shared your experience and how you actually ended up working for the, I forgot it was if it's called the parks department or what it is um, to, to make that more uh, part of the visit or understandable for people to know why those chains are at her feet. I don't know if you want to share a bit about that. Sure. Um, so what happened was in, it was about, I think it was 2007, 2007 or 2008, a friend of mine, uh, Floyd Myers, really dear, dear friend, um, uh, got a job at for the department. He was working for the Department of the Interior. He lives in New York, and um, he was over. He was over all of the parks in uh, the state of New York. And so he called me uh, and he said, "Joy, you know, I want you to come to the Statue of Liberty, and uh, you know, I can get you a pass." And I said, "Oh no." <laughs> he said, "Why?" I said, "Because it's going to make me mad, Floyd. I'm not uh -huh. I'm going. It's going to make me mad." He goes, "What do you mean?" I said, no, 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 Floyd, I, I'm not going. I know it's going to make me bad. He goes, come on. I can, you know, you can go up in her eye and everything. So I said, okay. And the reason why I had said no was because I had been to France. I'd been, I'd actually seen Bartholdi's original uh, drawings of the, mm. of the Statue of Liberty. And in the drawings, um, right now, if I, as a matter of fact, if you ask anybody, what is the Statue of Liberty holding in her left hand? Her right hand, of course, she has the torch. But what is in her left hand? And when it is in our left hand, people go, well, I don't know, it's a Bible. Nope, it's not a Bible. Oh, it's a scroll. Nope, it's not a scroll. Actually, I don't know what it is. Even at the Statue of Liberty, <laughs> it's just a rectangular thing with a Roman numeral on it. So what she was holding, however, originally in the drawing of Bartholdi, who was the sculptor, were, were broken chains. Mm -hmm. Now, this was commissioned in 1865, which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. We're looking at really celebrating. She is the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And the broken chains are about freedom, right? It's just do the math. It's real simple. Yeah. Uh, but the United States said, no, we don't want those chains. We don't want them, of course, you know, for every reason in the world. But Bartholdi was insistent. He was really insistent that the chains remain. And I often say that the biggest problems in America are because of the pathology of denial. 
the, the, the pathology of, of having things hidden in plain sight, right? Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the whole idea was they didn't want to show the chains. They didn't want any chains at all, as a matter of fact. And until 2008, you know, I actually had, had a rather intense confrontation uh, with a couple of the uh, rangers who were, the, mm-hmm. who were very, very defensive because the chains actually have always been there. But they are not hard to see. They're impossible mm-hmm. to see because they are at her feet. She's on a pedestal. You can't see them from below. If you're inside, you can't see them from inside. So they're hidden in plain sight. And so I felt some kind of way about that, right? So I did a little deeper digging and realized that Bartholdi was a sympathizer with the abolitionist movement. I mean, I'm learning all these different things. Mm. Um, and so I, you know, I speak to Floyd, my friend's boss. You know, I don't want to get Floyd in trouble. He just got the job. <laughs> I, can't, I can't create a problem for my friend. Um, so he said, no, Joy, I'm with you. I'm with you all the way. So we talked to the, his, his boss, and his boss said, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Nope. Not going to do anything about mm-hmm. it. I said, listen, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to uh, pay to have, you know, maybe a local black artist in, in New York sculpt just that part and put it on display. Because they show you everything in the world about mm-hmm. the Statue of Liberty. They cut it in half. They let you know how thick it is. They tell you I turned green because it was copper. It oxidized. I mean, they tell you more than you ever want to know. And they show you every single aspect of the Statue of Liberty on the tour except her feet. Mm-hmm. So now what's interesting, I said, okay, and I'll even get a sculpture. I said, I will pay myself to have a picture, a photo of it. Oh, I'm doing, saying all this. His boss says no. I said, okay. Mm-hmm. So I started telling on him everywhere. I travel all over the world. At the time, <laughs> pre-COVID, I was, tra- of course, traveling all over the world. And I was telling this very story and showing the pictures, right, mm-hmm. of the chains that are not shown and are not on the tour. So I get a call from the Department of the Interior. And this time it's, it's, it's Floyd's boss, and I guess he's his boss's boss, whoever these folks were. They call me and they say, we'd like to speak with you. So I, they fly me to New York. They apologize, say we've been negligent, and we're going to correct this. Uh, and the first thing we want you to do is train all of our rangers, mm-hmm. which I did. And now the chains, now this was now, I think, 2013, 2014, because I went back three times, because I didn't trust just because they said they were going to change something they weren't. <laughs> I just, you know, <laughs> got to keep them honest. So I went back, um, and the chains, they have a picture of it on, on display, and I was really pleased as pie. I really was. Oh, my goodness. I, we've arrived, all is good in the world. Um, and something rather spectacular happened. And I'm actually going to read exactly what it says. So not only did they put the, the chains on display, I went undercover to see if the, uh, the rangers would talk about the chains. Mm-hmm. You see, once you show the chains, you have to, you have to, that's part of the part of reason they didn't want to show them. Because mm-hmm. you have to explain what they mean. Yep. And I thought, you know, look, are they going to do this unasked? So I have a picture of me with the ranger. He explained the whole thing unasked. But what was most spectacular was what emerged May 23rd, 2019, Washington Post. The Statue of Liberty was created to celebrate freed slaves, not immigrants. Its mm-hmm. new museum recounts. Lady Liberty was inspired by the end of the Civil War and emancipation. The connection to immigration came later. Lady Liberty was originally designed to celebrate the end of slavery, not the arrival of mm-hmm. immigrants. Ellis Island, 
the inspection station through which millions of immigrants passed didn't open until six years after the statue was unveiled in 1886. The plaque with the famous Emma Lazarus poem, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, Your Huddled Masses, Yearning to Breathe Free, wasn't added until 1903. Hmm. So now, now, if you look at this article, there's a whole new museum, right? And they're saying it was never about immigrants. It was always about freed slaves. Stay with hmm. me. Now, here's my question to you and your audience. I would love to believe that Dr. Joy, you know, it, it uncovered this. But do you think they didn't know this already? Right. Mm-hmm. Of course they knew. Of course mm-hmm. they knew. And this is why we cannot, again, embark upon these, on this belief that we have a true accounting of history. Whose narrative are we reading and writing about? Mm -hmm. And so again, here this is something, again, the most recognized probably symbol throughout the world is the Statue of Liberty, and we've been ignorant about its the whole purpose of of it being created. So by the way, I did find the picture in the Statue of Liberty. I found the original drawing. It was in the basement of the Statue of Liberty that that in in 2007, hidden in in a, a encased in glass behind figurines facing a wall in a hallway. That's where the picture was. <laughs> now, I was looking for it because I knew it was a historical document. That it mm-hmm. had to be there. Um, but now it's prominently displayed because now they've told the truth, you see. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it's not that they didn't know. Of course. it was, And, and it's always the secrets that make us sick. Mm-hmm. It's always mm-hmm. the secrets. And so you know that as a, as a therapist. I know that. it's all, No matter what the presenting problem is, ultimately... It's that secret, yeah. and and it comes out somewhere that's still hurting uh, the individual or the family, the group. So again, it, you know, it was it was an amazing journey for me that mm-hmm. lasted from 2007 until 2019. Wow, yeah, um, May 23rd. <laughs> yeah, and I have to actually go look at that article. You in the book you shared a, a bit about how you uh, were then you know asked to to, to you know train. Um, the people who were giving the, the tours and all the rangers, yeah. But I think it's actually, it is such a perfect encapsulation of uh, the United States in so many ways that we, okay, let's just look at the Statue of Liberty and how it's it's about American greatness and how you know beautiful it is. But let's not think about the, the bad parts that are actually the part of our history that's really part of that symbol as well. Let's just look at what we want to look at um, and let's not look at those chains. But what I think is also important is you... We, we want to talk more about healing and what it's going to take from all of us. Uh, but you actually took the action to, to make that happen. As you said, uh, of course, they kn- knew the history that you didn't uncover something brand new. It was there, but covered. Um, but you brought it out and made it so that they couldn't ignore it anymore, which is, I, I think, a lot of what's going on right now. And we're still in that process of trying to yes, uncover the absolutely. history and all the, the present injustices that continue in the United States to, to make sure we have to we have to look at it. And, and we talked about this on the break that um, being therapists, we work with individuals and couples and families. And you mentioned secrets or some wrongdoing also that happened years ago uh, that can sure. damage a relationship and it will never recover or be as healthy, as strong as it could be. And of course, if we look at the relationship between the United States and its black citizens, so many wrongs have been done for hundreds of years. And and I think you emphasize that in talks. I've heard you say that we're not just talking about 10 years, 20 years, we're saying hundreds of years, you know, 300 plus years of slavery. And then after that, um, even more, uh, you know, wrongdoing in different ways. Uh, how can we assume in any way it's possible for America to be the 
a healthy, happy, united states where we're all united and together until we reconcile, recognize, acknowledge, and apologize for the wrongdoings that have happened in this country. I think it's really impossible to see a resolution without that happening. Absolutely, absolutely correct. And, um, you know, I often, um, you know, during COVID, I've been zoomed out, as you know, that mm-hmm. <laughs> just zoomed out. I'm beginning to feel like I'm becoming a part of my chair in my office. <laughs> I'm just, you know, we're molding, uh-huh. molding ourselves together. Um, but one of the things that comes up often when we talk about this is, again, people look at it as historical. But it's, it's, it's what followed slavery, what I have to always help, help mm-hmm. uh, people understand. I have a slide in my presentation that says, after 1865, where did slavery go? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because mm-hmm. people have this kind of mythology around yeah. p- balanced playing field, everything's leveled, everybody's fine, right? Yeah. But literally, the oppressive policies that were put in place, Jim Crow, 4,000 400 lynchings, that's just the ones we got names for. Those are the folks we have names for. 4,400 people. This is after slavery. Mm-hmm. Right? And we're talking about Jim Crow laws and we're burning whole cities to the ground of prosperous black cities like Greenwood. We're looking at continued oppression, police use of deadly force. We're looking at all of these different things that continue to occur up to 2021. Mm-hmm. So there's, again, I don't know why we hold to this myth that it's, it's all that's all in the past. Right. But I wanted to, um, because there's often a pe- person that says, well, I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I didn't do it. You know, uh, you know, uh, why are you talking about that? Get over it. All these different things that people will say to black folks, right? They'll say this to black people. And I want to read this short statement taken from the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. If you have not read her book Cast, please do. Uh, she's phenomenal, and her book is phenomenal, as well as The Warmth of Other Sons. And I named this piece This House. And I don't know if anyone has captured the sentiments of America the way she has here and really put to rest some of these, um, these very strange ideas. We in the developed world are like homeowners who inherited a house on a piece of land that is beautiful on the outside, but whose soil is unstable loam and rock, mm. heaving and contracting over generations, cracks, patched, but the deeper ruptures waved away for decades, centuries even. Many people may rightly say, I had nothing to do with how this all started. I have nothing to do with the sins of the past. My ancestors never attacked indigenous people, never owned slaves. And yes, not one of us was here when this house was built. Hmm. Our immediate ancestors may have had nothing to do with it. But here we are, the current occupants of a property with stress cracks and bowed walls and fissures built into the foundation. We are the heirs to whatever is right or wrong with it. We did not erect the uneven pillars of Joyce, but they are ours to deal with now. Hmm. And any further deterioration is, in fact, on our hands. Hmm. Unaddressed, the ruptures and diagonal cracks will not fix themselves. The toxins will not go away, but rather will spread, leach, and mutate as they already have. When people live in an old house, They come to adjust to the idiosyncrasies and outright dangers skulking in an old structure. They put buckets under a wet ceiling, prop up groaning floors, learn to step over that rotting wood tread in the staircase. The awkward becomes acceptable, and the unacceptable becomes merely inconvenient. Hmm. Live with it long enough, and the unthinkable 
becomes normal and exposed over generations, we learn to believe that the incomprehensible is the way that life is supposed to be. Wow. Again, this is the house we've inherited. Mm -hmm. This is the house we have inherited. And I think that the answer is when you talk about healing, again, first it is to know, and then it is to do. Mm-hmm. We can't even hope to deal with this reality if we are afraid to look at it. As you know, the, the road to recovery has to come with a proper diagnosis of whatever the ill is. Mm-hmm. And once we have that, that diagnosis, then we have to look at the remedies that are necessary. And in this case, we're talking, talking about not just remedying the assault on the personage, on the intrinsic value and beauty and nobility of a people. It's not just that. It's not just saying you're sorry, but to create a system that is just, mm-hmm. to correct for the injustices that have happened. You break my leg and then you complain that I limp. Mm. And then you charge me to fix the bruise, right? So it's yeah. amazing when we start looking at the extent to which people continue to benefit on the suffering of others that have been imposed on them. So it, this is not, it's not just, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, there has to be a, a reparations. And this, again, has, you know, there's precedence for reparations. Mm-hmm. You know, other groups have received reparations. Yeah. It's not like this is new either. But not Africans, not black people, not um, black uh, uh, people who are the descendants of those who were enslaved that have been, you know, relegated to positions of, of empower, in, in being impoverished and, and um, a poor health. All of these point to these, this legacy of injustice. And so when we start talking about reparations, again, that's where the rubber meets the road. Right. That's where we start saying, you know, um, and I want uh, to tell this, this story because this is such a really good illustration of justice um, and children. So this is, these are children. I uh, was asked, this is many years ago, uh, uh, to do a training. It was like, you know, during... You know, be kind to Negroes months and, you know, people, and I don't do that. I mean, I actually don't go and become the, you know, the special, you know, Negro that people pick up and say, oh, here, you know, I don't do that. I go, you got to find somebody else to do that. I don't do talk. But I will work with children mm-hmm. and I will work with youth. You know, this is something that I've committed myself to because they may not know better, but big people, they should know better. And so I get this call from a friend of mine on the coast of Oregon, Oregon, Oregon coast. And he's, I think, a pastor of a, he was a pastor of the church, a really unique man. Um, he said, listen, Joy, I was wondering if you come and talk to some youth about Martin Luther King and, you know, justice, him being a drum major for justice. That's the theme of our camp or whatever. I said, okay. So I said, it'd be nice. I'd be on the coast, hang out. So I go to the coast. I have my, you know, my computer. I have my, you know, all my little papers and all this stuff. And I walk into a room of three to six-year-olds. Literally, mm. <laughs> they're three to six year old. I couldn't believe they're all sitting on the rug, you know, their little legs folded, throwing spitballs and such. And I'm like, what? Right? So I put my little computer away and I'm going, okay, this is what you got to think on your feet. So I look at all these whole, whole little room full of them. And I said, would anybody like to do a, a, a little skit? You know, we'll, we'll put together some. And everybody, I do, I do, all the little hands raised. So I picked two little girls, blonde hair, blue eyed little girls. And they, um, they say, I want to do it. So I take them up and I say, all right, I'm going to be the teacher. And I whisper to them what they're going to do. So one of them, they're both seated in at desks facing all the little kids sitting on the floor. And one of them has a crayon and one of them has a toy. 
And they are, you know, one's playing with a toy, the other was, you know, drawing something. And I am the teacher. I have my back to them. I'm at my desk. Mm-hmm. And the little girl that has the crayon gets up and leaves. And when she gets up and leaves, the little girl with the toy takes her crayon. So when the little girl gets back, she realizes the girl's taking her crayon. So she taps me on the shoulder. She goes, teacher, teacher, she took my crayon. I said, she did. I said, so I get up and I ask the little girl that with the toy and picked, had her stand up. I said, did you take her crayon? And the little girl goes, yes. She says, say you're sorry. She goes, oh, I'm sorry. I said, okay. So I turned around, sat at my desk. And the two little girls went and sat back down. Mm-hmm. And so the little kids in the audience started screaming, no, no, raising their hands. I'm going, what's wrong? Let's do it again. So I said, did you take her crayon? Yeah. Are you sorry? I'm sorry. And then I had them both go sit down. Mm-hmm. And the little girl, little bitty one in the front. Little bitty one. Maybe three or four years old. Raised her hand. I said, well, what's the problem? She goes, she got to give back that crayon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, no, yep. no, no, no. You got to get, this is not going to be okay till she gives right. her that crayon back. Now, that's a three-year-old. They uh-huh. can figure that out. Yep. Right? And so what we, when we start looking at justice, mm-hmm. we start talking about healing. Healing can't happen in a little room with somebody talking softly to you twice twice a week. That's, yep. that's not what we're talking about when you look at the African-American experience. Yeah, that may be necessary for some, but what we need is justice. Right. Let's be clear. There has to be justice here, economic justice, you know, in, in terms of help and healing in every discipline. That justice has to happen. Being denied rights to buy homes, the GI Bill. I mean, it goes mm-hmm. all the way back. We were denied all of those rights. Yep. And we got to make that right so that we can have sustainable communities, so that we can continue a trajectory of continual improvement and advancement, which we're doing in spite of it, struggling. But that has to be made right. Yep. And so there's there's this kind of sense of we can all talk about it, sing kumbaya and be good. No, this requires structural change. This requires policy change. And my last statement here is it requires vetting, which has also been something that has precedence. You saw what happened at the Capitol, right? Mm-hmm. And you remember when the inauguration was getting ready to happen, these senators said, oh, wait a minute, we need to take a look at these armed guards, the National Guard. And we need to vet them to make certain they're not among those that would do us harm. You following mm-hmm. me? Mm-hmm. So they knew, let's vet them, and then found some of them. Found some of them, 12 of them, and eliminated them because they're direct ties with white supremacy or illegal activities. So you saw clear enough to take care of yourself, but you don't see clear enough that we need to vet every police officer in American cities. You can be a police officer. But not if you have the same kind of problems we saw at the Capitol. You don't get to come in the neighborhoods of right. color. That seems pretty straightforward and simple to me. Teachers, same thing. Because mm-hmm. you have teachers that hate black children. Mm-hmm. And not all of them are white teachers. Some of them look just like us because that gets back to that other issue that we were talking about right. earlier. Right? Mm-hmm. And so we, we, what I'm saying is the answers are, the, the injury occurred on multiple levels. So the healing has to occur yeah. on multiple levels, including structural, economic, you know, change. Yep. And I think, you know, we, uh, we're we actually way over the break, but I didn't want to stop you there. <laughs> but, but I think you're, you're right. We're not going to make something right. Saying, uh, acknowledging and apologizing is the first step. But until you make the changes, it's not going to be 
reconciled, whether we're talking about it in a relationship between two people, or in this case, when we're talking about a whole group of people that Give have been wrong. Give me wronged. my crayon back. Give, give me yeah. back. And we can talk after the break about what that crayon is going to entail. How are we going to give that crayon back to the, the black community of the United States and what everyone can do to be a part of that process? So I'm with Dr. Joy DeGruy. We'll be right back. Welcome back. My guest today, Dr. Joy DeGruy, author of Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And before the break, Dr. DeGruy, you were sharing the story about these young children and a demonstration you did with them, showing them that just saying sorry is not right. You know, you have to give back that crayon if you stole that crayon from them. And that's a very simple uh, answer. And what we have to deal with here in the United States to reconcile all the wrongs is going to be much more complicated than that, but we must do it. And I wanted to hear some of your thoughts. Uh, you shared some of them before the break of some of the, the things we need to make right. But what do you see as this path towards reparations that we sometimes hear about? And also, what can everyone do? Because I think a lot of people think, well, as long as I'm not part of the problem and I'm not racist, then I'm okay. Um, so maybe if you could share some of your thoughts. I know those are some big questions, but I wanted to hear what you think about that. Sure. Um, I think on, you know, many folks that are, are very much in the forefront of the uh, reparations movement, you know, are pointing out uh, the structures and institutions within America that were have been built on the backs of, of slaves mm -hmm. and, and slavery in this country. Uh, or, you know, huge respected institution like like uh, Johns Hopkins University, Harvard, Yale, the major Ivy Leagues, when you start looking at how they were built and what, you know, what funded their ability to do that, insurance companies, the, the money was there. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, tons and tons of money that was generated uh, based on unpaid labor. And given that fact, there's no reason in the world why there are not uh, communities of color are not, are not prospering. Again, we've never been able to prosper, not because we haven't worked as hard as everybody else, not because we didn't have the capacity, but we were denied. We were denied loans. We were denied all of the things necessary to make our community sustainable. And when we did, they were burnt to the ground. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these suggest that, one, number one, education. For 300 years, it was illegal to read and write right? Mm -hmm. uh, these institutions that, that have made money have built themselves on the back of slavery and then denied entrance. Right. For, yes. Again, all, all those all these years. And I'm saying so I believe education is very clear that I think every black man, woman and child cannot should not ever be denied education in, in to any institution they want that they want to go to, including the, um, the Ivy League, as well as the historically black colleges. That should be just to me up front clear mm -hmm. that that education, because that was that was just a clear demarcation line that we were denied. And then we're, we're looking at, uh, again, economic sustainability. When we start looking at what's happening in communities of color throughout the United States, every major uh, city in the United States, people say, well, you know, we don't have segregation. We don't. Hmm. We don't. I, I bet you you can walk into any community and say, where's the black community? In other words, where have the black people been marginalized to live? Where are the places that have the lowest uh, tax revenue here and, and where people don't have the ability to support businesses? I, and you know, every city, even though we pride ourselves on being, oh, no, we've, we've no longer have segregation. We absolutely have mm -hmm. segregation. And, and again, these things are glaring. Healthcare. Yeah. I mean, you name it. Every major institution. Yep. We have to begin to look. And as an individual, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, my sister-in-law, Kathleen Cross, uh, there's a, a video that went viral, and we were we were shocked out of our minds that it went viral. But it's called 
trip to the grocery store where I tell the story of Kathleen, who's half black, half white, but looks white, um, and what she did does in this grocery store. And it's amazing. At least 40 million people have seen this video. And it, it we, we figured out that what it did, because Kathleen actually intervened when I um, and myself and my daughter, you know, we're, we're related, but nobody knew that. She looked like just an arbitrary white woman, but mm-hmm. she was, you know, we were all together in the store and I was treated clearly differently than she was treated. Um, you know, I was asked for ID. I, people were looking up, you know, my, my, my um, license to see if I had written bad checks. And Kathleen stepped over and confronted the, the uh, cashier who was, who was taking me through this. Uh, the manager came over. She changed the whole situation because she, she was a white face. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. saw another white face looking back. So she understood she had white privilege, even though she was half black. And so what that did, it went viral because I think there's so many people that say, my God, there's something I can do. And if you think about it, it was really interesting. I really believe it had something to do with it. Well, we had all the, matter of fact, there's something called the Karen Act. You know, mm-hmm. these are white women behaving mm-hmm. badly, right? So the Karen Act, which has been um, submitted in California, where, you know, there is some, again, some teeth behind your bad behavior. You're going to go to jail or be fined or both. Um, but what was amazing about what you, if you think back to all of the Karens that we've seen that have been publicized, it's been a white woman often that confronts them. Hmm. It's really interesting, but you have all of these white people that are saying, wait a minute, that, he didn't do anything wrong. No, no, stepping, leaning in, using their white privilege. There's always something you can do. There's always, whatever lane you're in, wherever you are, I don't care if you don't work. I don't care where you are. There is something you can do. If you have the power of hiring people, then be just and mm-hmm. be fair and be equitable in your hiring. If you're someone that that is a teacher, then you make certain that each student is treated with with dignity and respect. If you, it doesn't matter what lane you're in. The repair has to happen. This is hard work. Now, of course, on the, on the, on the one end, whether you like me or not it, it is not relevant to me at this point. You don't have to like me, but I insist that you treat me with respect and dignity and justice. I insist upon that. If you can move further, then move it into your heart and understand that as a humanity, we lose our humanity. All of us do. None of us are free if any of us are not free. None of us are well if, if, if all of us can't be well. We've got to recognize, even with COVID, we are still seeing the disparity in yep. the treatment, even in the, in the access to care. All of those things continue. So for me, you know, I think when we talk, talk about reparations, we're talking about structural institutional policy change. That's the, that's the big, big C. But then we have to look at change in our own individual lives. Mm-hmm. You know, a really good friend of mine, Ruha Benjamin, yeah. made a statement that just really touched me and I carry it with me everywhere. You know, she said, you know, as a child, you know, if you've ever seen black people on the street and black people walking down the street and all of a sudden you'll see them nod to each other. Mm-hmm. They'll nod, right? Perfect strangers. They'll nod. It's an acknowledgement that I see you. And she talked about being a little girl. And she started crying when she told the story. She started crying, she said, because there were perfect strangers that were beaming love to me. Hmm. They were beaming love to me. They didn't even know me, but they beamed love to me. And, she, and, it, and it warmed my heart as a child. It warms our hearts as adults to be in love. We have the ability to do that. It's a decision. It's a choice. Hmm. And so when I say to people, yeah, this change has to happen one way or another, whether you like me, it helps we know and recognize our intrinsic oneness as human beings. It helps if we see our humanity in each other. It helps even more if we can love each other. 
this doesn't become hard if we can love each other. Mm. You know, but all that whole spectrum of things I just said need to happen for repair to happen. Yeah. And everyone is capable of it. Everyone is capable of it and everyone needs to play a part in it. It's it's not going to happen just by a few people taking actions and and the actions are many and the the solutions I think it it obviously will take time but that should never be a reason not to make things right and i know i, I want to talk to you forever but i we, i know you i wanted to let you go at the hour mark so i'll, I'll stop things there but I, I wanted to thank you first for for writing this book post-traumatic slave syndrome and all the work that you do but also for taking the time to to come on my show today i greatly appreciate it my pleasure thank you be have well. a wonderful day we'll be in touch take, take care, care. That was Dr. Joy DeGruy, author of Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, America's Legacy of Enduring Injury and Healing. A big thank you to her for joining me today. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So uh, for the first part of the show, I was very happy to be joined by Dr. Joy DeGruy, author of the book Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. I really do hope you read that book if you haven't already. And, uh, you know, we got to talk about so many things, but there's obviously a limited time to discuss such big issues that we couldn't talk about so much. And I wanted to follow up on on some of uh, what we discussed there at the end about making things right and healing and repairing um, what has happened here in the United States. Uh, and some of the things that you sometimes hear from people, uh, Dr. DeGruy mentioned some of them. But in general, when people talk about making things right or if things are unfair and this actually came up on my show monday night as well one of the things people will say is like well you know life isn't fair or some way of justifying the um, injustice or unfairness that is going on well some people don't have uh, enough food to eat oh you know the world isn't fair or some people don't have an opportunity to do this or that maybe things aren't fair or even worse sometimes a justification as in those people deserve it in some way. Dr. DeGruy mentioned dehumanization, somehow promoting an idea of white supremacy. So if things are this way, maybe they are actually supposed to be this way. It's somehow good. So that's one aspect that somehow either it's the way the world is, the way it's supposed to be, or just things aren't fair always. And we have to accept that, which to me is very unacceptable to go there to just say things are unfair. Um, so we have to accept them. We definitely should never accept that as a basis. If something is unfair, unjust, we should want to make it right. Um, she shared that wonderful quote about uh you know, if you go, if you inherit a house and it has some issues, you, you, it's our, it's our responsibility now to fix it. I was thinking if you saw a child that was choking, you wouldn't think, well, I didn't give him the food that made him choke, or I didn't make him choke. You would go save the kid's life. You don't think about if you're responsible for the pain, if there's an injustice or some kind of pain, we should all feel responsible to, to make it right, do what we can to make it right. So that's one aspect, this idea that, uh, uh, you know, maybe things are supposed to be unfair or there's some reason why. Uh, sometimes we have this uh, desire um, for a just world. There's, a, there's actually a psychological concept or construct called need for a just world. Sometimes we want to think, well, maybe there's a reason why because it's too painful or it could be hard leading to some of the cognitive dissonance that she discussed to think that something is not fair. So if someone got attacked, well, oh, maybe she shouldn't have been out that late. This is where we get into blaming the victim. Maybe they shouldn't have been there or they were 
maybe starting something or they asked for it in some way, uh, whatever the justification we come up with to somehow make it okay what happened to them. And we have to resist the, at time, temptation or the easier feeling we might get by justifying what has happened in that way and recognize that no if something's unfair it's unfair and we need to do what we can to make it fair which usually means facing the issue and it can be uncomfortable and that's why we try to avoid it but we have to resist that comfort of just trying to say well however things are is how they're supposed to be the other thing that people will say that leads to not taking action or another dynamic that comes into play is this mindset that well how are we going to make it exactly right so with reparations here in the United States, sometimes people will say things like, well, how do we figure out who are the exact descendants of slaves and, and how much should they get? Oh, it's, it's just too it's too big of a problem to figure out. So let's just, you know, I think we just got to forget it. And that to me is also completely unacceptable. If something is wrong, we want to make it as right as possible. Can we ever make up for slavery and the treatment of African Americans here in the United States? There's no, nothing's going to take away what has happened. Nothing is going to, um, in that way, make things right, as in make it exactly, uh, you know, as if it never happened. We can never make it not happen, but we should strive to try to make things as right as possible. Just like if you were to have done something wrong to someone, if you hurt someone in some way, you can never take back what you did or you might not be able to make it exactly right, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try everything in your power to make it as right as possible. Um, or if your son or daughter was in extreme pain, excruciating pain, and the doctor said, you know, we can give them some of these this balm that's going to take away not all of the pain, just 80%. So should we just not give them that balm at all? You would say, of course not. Why are you even asking me already? Put that balm on my child to make him or her feel better, to not be in so much pain. You wouldn't say, well, we're not going to make it perfect, so let's not do that. And so when it comes to this concept of reparations in the United States, um, rather than thinking of how complicated it is and because of that giving up we should realize how wrong the history and the current situation is and we want to strive to make it right and as right as we possibly can and people also will debate this is actually another issue that gets in the way because there isn't agreement of how to go about reparations People all say, well, you know, we can't even agree on the right way to do it. Even African-Americans don't all agree on how to do it. So forget it. It's, it's too complex, too complicated. How can we even make everyone happy? We're not going to make everyone happy. And that to me is also not enough of a reason. I mean, almost never will everyone in a certain group agree exactly on how to handle a situation. Practically, that's never going to happen. So uh, that shouldn't be an impediment or something that doesn't even um, get us to get the ball rolling to figure things out. It will be a challenge and does mean that we probably will have to listen to different voices to get some kind of a consensus or understanding. And then once we get there, try to make that as right as possible. Um, but it doesn't mean we should just give up because again, the, the process is too complicated or, oh, it's just too hard. So let's give up and, and you know, make it that we can't do anything about it. If we can make things more right, we should do that. You know, some people, there's this um, one concept is uh, some type of a one-time payment made to 
descendants of slaves to make up for it. Uh, that could be one part of it. I think, and of course what I think is going to be less important than people who um, are actually part of the African-American community, but as we continue these conversations, I think it'll be important to consider various ideas. But as Dr. DeGruy was really stressing, it's going to be about making things just and fair. And there is so much that even today, currently in 2021, is unfair for the experience of African-Americans um, from the wealth that has been accumulated, the effects that has, to things like, if you even look at a um, applications for a job, they've done things where they've just changed the, the name of the applicant. There's nothing else but the resume that's different to either a black sounding name or a white sounding name. And I think the, the white applicants got 50% more calls um, than the black candidates with exactly the same resume. Um, or she also talks about this study in the book where uh, they asked teachers to watch a preschool and to look for problem behaviors. And actually the video that the teachers were going to see had no problem behaviors in it, but they were scanning the teacher's eyes and the teachers were more likely to look at this black boy, meaning they were almost primed to expect bad behavior would be coming from that poor black boy in this video who's just playing, but they're looking at him as the problem. And so we can see that these things, they go deep. The racism in the United States, it's not just something that easily can be removed. Going back to Dr. Guru's example of when you're repairing something, sometimes you have to just shore up something, fix one part of it, take off one part. But sometimes you got to go to the roots to make changes. And if you don't do that, you're never going to make things right. And here in the United States, we have a long ways to go to go from being America, that last part of the country's name, to the United States, where all people are united and all people truly are treated equal and given those rights that uh, were promised in the in the founding of the country are promised in more theory, but was never really brought into practice or brought into that reality. And as I shared um, briefly on the air with Dr. DeGruy, something that I've recognized when I think of this issue of reparations and what needs to be done. I've worked with couples, families, and something that has happened in the family, something someone did many years ago, or even some pattern of behavior for a short amount of time, has seriously damaged the relationship. And until it's acknowledged and there's an apology and some kind of reparation, repairing and reconciliation is made, the relationship can never be healthy and strong or as healthy and strong as it can be. And here we're talking about just someone, you know, saying something or doing something wrong in a short period of time compared to what has been the experiences of black Americans here in the United States for hundreds of years. And to think that somehow we can make things right without an, a very clear apology, acknowledgement, and then reconciliation and reparation, to me, it's, it's crazy to think that that's going to happen that we can somehow move forward. And also she mentioned uh, that story of the, the crayon and the kids and just saying sorry and that that's it. No, you have to make things right. The best apology is changed behavior when we're looking at uh, relationships between two people. But of course, also when we're looking at something like a, a injustice that's done to a community, 
we have to make things change. Just saying even sorry for slavery, sorry for Jim Crow, sorry for what's happened, that's not going to do it. It's going to have to be changes made in the, in the structure of the country. It, of course, is going to be a huge undertaking. It's going to be very challenging, complex, have lots of issues, first from figuring out even what to do, then how to do it. There's going to be mistakes made, try to do it this way, doesn't work, waste will be part of it, all sorts of things that are part of any kind of process of change, especially then when you get the government involved and citizens involved. It's going to be complicated, but I would hope that we never take that easy way out or what feels easier in the moment and easier for those who are not suffering of just saying, you know what, this is too complicated or I didn't do it or maybe this is just the way things are going to be and just accept that status quo. I hope uh, me, myself, and also anyone listening and all of us will be a part of the solution, which means we have to take actual actions and steps to make things better. And so again, a big thank you to Dr. Joy DeGruy for joining me on the show to talk about her book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome um, and, and Related Issues. Let's go to a, another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, so uh, the studio numbers are now it's open now to take calls. I know today's show is a little bit of a different format, but I did actually want to follow up on um, questions that were asked for me for Monday's show. So I might do this more often, but for um, I was doing it maybe a couple of years ago as well. But taking questions from you, uh, I've, I've posted the question on Instagram. Um, you can ask any questions or topic suggestions for the show. And so many were submitted for Monday's show and I didn't get to get to barely any of them. I think I did five or six at the most. And so I wanted to pick up on a few more uh, of those. One question was posed about money and happiness. And I thought that was uh, an interesting one, something that we hear obviously a lot about or think about. And, you know, there's research on money and happiness, but it's such a pervasive part of our culture and understanding of what we should want in this world that I think it's hard for people to um, understand uh, maybe it's not exactly what we think it is or shouldn't be as important as we think it is. So there is a lot of research and you probably have heard of it or seen it where when we look at money and happiness up to a certain amount and that can of course depend on um, where you are uh, living and the, the cost of living and the, the cost of life and all that. But um, once you get to a certain amount, a moderate amount of wealth where you're taken care of, we don't see any significant changes in your happiness once you have more money. And I think when people hear this, it's very hard for them to comprehend that because we assume that more money means more happiness. And so many of us are striving towards, well, if I just have more money, I will be happy. Um, so when we hear this research, we, we might believe it to some degree, but I don't think most people really do believe that as far as how they live their lives, thinking that if they make more money, they're going to be happier. But the research makes this very clear. Actually, what's going to make you happier long term is the quality of the relationships that you have how loved and supported and close you feel not necessarily means actually lots of people but it means having close relationships that's a better predictor of your lifetime happiness than the money 
that you have. And so money is this very interesting social construct. And so we were talking about race in, in, earlier in the show, which is a social construct in the sense that biologically to really define race, it's very complicated and we really can't do that. And actually uh, uh, humans across the globe are more similar than even chimpanzees in Western Africa and Central Africa which I thought was quite fascinating. I saw that in the book by Augustine Fuentes, um, Why We Believe. So humans, we might think we look so different or people might make that assumption, but really we're actually genetically much more similar than we realize. Even uh, chimpanzees in the same continent are more different than, than we are as humans across the globe, which is quite actually fascinating. But race is a social construct, but it doesn't mean that the consequences of it are not real. Uh, now that we have made it this social construct, it's continuing to impact people in so many ways. And so money is also a social construct in the sense that it doesn't really exist in some kind of way, um, but we have made it important and the most important part of life in a lot of ways so it's something that we have created and actually when we look at it the social construct these new technologies like cryptocurrency uh, nfts i don't really know almost anything about that but there's new forms of currency that are developed and it's interesting because i think for some people like me even who doesn't know about it, much about it but others will think well this is like fake money in in a way um, but really, how real is money? It's very much a, a social construct that we've made so real. But I think it's important to look at this idea of how money and having more of it is always seen as a good thing. And even I think the field of economics, um, my brother's a member of that field, and I think he's actually very knowledgeable and more knowledgeable about these issues I'll talk about. But this field of economics, and sometimes when you look at how they've researched some things and saying are humans being rational or irrational, usually, or one of the, the factors involved is if they could do something to have more money, then that's rational. If you do something and end up with less money, it's irrational. And it's almost just that's it. It's almost that cut and dried. And I am simplifying it, but at times that's how things are looked at, which points to this idea that having money and more money is always good and if you can have more of it and you didn't get more of it you're being stupid and illogical and irrational even though the research tells us that once you have a certain amount it's not going to make you happier and even though when we're making decisions so many other factors are important and might be more important but it gives us this idea that always to have more money uh, is a good thing and you should always do that no matter what or you're being irrational and stupid and I think that itself is a stupid idea and irrational and when we look at the research that shows that you're not going to be happier by having more money uh, especially up to a certain point or after a certain point and I think what this sets up is many things one of the things that um, money and the ways we look at success, which is tied into that in the sense that success, meaning that people know you and you make a lot of money and you're famous. Um, one of the problems is, one, most people don't achieve that. And so because of that and because this has become 
the ideal, they feel like a failure. Oh, I'm not that rich. And especially now with social media, you can just see so many people who are wealthy and flaunting that wealth and, you know, flexing with how much they have and what their life is like. And this is my car and this is my house and this is my jewelry. Uh, and so most people are looking at like, oh, I can never have those things. That guy or that girl, they're winning at life and I'm a loser. And so we feel like we're failing if we don't meet that standard, which is the reality for most people. Most people can't be uh, extremely wealthy. I mean, or by definition, most people can't be in the 1%, only 1% or the top 1% can be in that by definition. So 99% of people won't be there. And so those people can are all going to feel like losers, or let's say maybe the bottom, whatever percent you want to call it, will feel that way. And then the other problem is people that achieve it, they're going to find that they're not happier because of it. And that can make them feel in some ways even worse, because if I have everything I'm supposed to want, but I'm still unhappy, then I must be really messed up or something must be really wrong with me. If I've gotten everything and I'm still unhappy, I'm defective. And you hear this from actually many celebrities and people that get very famous and wealthy. Um, they wanted to be famous. They wanted to make it. And then they do. And now they're still miserable. Actually, I'm remembering um, Trent Reznor, I think, yeah, from Nine Inch Nails, and he was sharing how he was very depressed and, and all that. And then he got famous, and in some ways he might have gotten more depressed, or at least it didn't make him happy, as you might think that it would. But to many of us from the outside looking in, we think, oh, he's got it all now, rich and famous. Uh, that's what we're all supposed to strive towards. But when you get it and you realize you're unhappy, that makes you feel even worse in some ways. Now, um, another issue when we look at this idea that having more money is always good, I saw some uh, quote or it was kind of like a meme saying how if someone stacks their house with newspapers, um, we think this person is a hoarder. This person has some, you know, anxiety issue leading to hoarding and that's crazy or if they have too much of something else. But having so much money when other people are suffering is not seen as anything wrong. It's actually praised. They're put on the cover of magazines, put on Forbes most, most wealthy lists, and we praise them and look at them as the most admirable people. Someone who has so much money, too much money, they can't do anything with it or they're not going to use almost any of it or such a small percentage of it. While other people are suffering, we think of that as actually something praiseworthy and that's someone we admire. I think that's really sick and something very problematic. Imagine if you were in a house and, you know, we can use this analogy. The world is like a home, but we're all spread out a little bit more than one house. But really, we are still sharing one uh, living uh, place. If you're in a house and there's sandwiches and there's 10 people and 20 sandwiches and one guy had 18 of them and then other people were splitting the other two and starving and not doing well, would you praise that person who was hoarding the 18 sandwiches and be like, wow, that's that's who we all want to be. And other, other people are suffering and dying around him. But we praise that person. If, if anything, we would talk about how horrible that is and how selfish that person is being and inhumane they are, that they are, you know, doing having too much. They can't even use what they have. And other people would actually need it to survive and they're not getting it. And so it's not just to blame the wealthy and the elite. It's a very easy target to talk about because it's not just about them. It's about how we as a society deal with these issues and view these issues that we do look at. Well, if you can get more money, you should always get it. 
So mo most people, if they're in this position of those wealthy individuals, would probably do the same thing and just think, well, I got to just keep building wealth. It's like this kind of like video game or like a score that you have to just adding to that number um, without really looking at why and what does it do to me? Does it do anything for me? And who is suffering in the world as a result of this? It's just looked at as an acceptable thing, going back to this economic rationality that if you can have more money, you should always be trying to have more money. There is no reason for you not to. You'd be stupid not to do that. And I think that is very, very harmful and something that we all should take a second look at and recognize what are we doing? Why are we thinking in this way? Why is money, and going back to the question that the listener asked, money and happiness, why are we making it that you always should be trying to get more money? Now, another aspect of this is that so many people suffer from not having enough money that it actually does further perpetuate this type of a mindset that we need to have more money. And if you had money, you would be okay and happy and feel really good because the research does show that when you don't have enough money to meet your basic needs, that stress that you have, that lack of comfort, lack of stability will make you unhappy or will contribute to uh, negatively to your overall well-being, which we can understand if you're constantly having uh, food insecurity or housing instability or insecurity, of course, you're going to feel uh, unhappy and stressed and can enjoy so many aspects of life. So I think because of you know, these things, as many things tend to be, it's a self-fulfilling type of a thing or it's something that feeds on itself because those who have think that they should keep having more and more and more. And this also leads to more people being deprived. Those who are deprived genuinely do think having more money will make them happy. Now, it doesn't mean they have to become part of the 1% to feel that happiness, but to have those basic needs met is going to be necessary for them to to feel better. And so it does make them think, again, money is the solution. In some ways, we can look at it, money has been the problem by creating these possibilities for accumulations of wealth that really don't make sense, that don't function in a well way that is helpful to all of humanity. Uh, and um, talking about injustices, as I also talked about Monday and today, when we look at the world and we have things, for example, medicine that will save a child's life, but that family doesn't have money or we in the United States don't have universal health care or there's other issues that get in the way. Isn't that crazy to think the medicine exists to save a child's life, but because of this money thing, which we've made the most important thing in the world, that child might die. Does that make sense? How can we justify that? Um, or even when I see these online fundraising things um, of course on one hand it shows the goodness of people's hearts that they're sometimes donating money to someone they don't even know to pay for their medical bills or to help them out that's showing the the goodness of humanity but that that problem even exists to me i think shows one of the badnesses of humanity or the ills of humanity that we can allow for people to not be taken care of when we have the resources to do so Again, there's charities that help kids, you know, the Ronald McDonald Foundation. I, I remember volunteering there once. So it's for families whose kids um, are in the hospital 
And so because it can affect them financially, of course, to pay for all the bills and, uh, you know, the parents sometimes need to stay there or want to stay there with their child, of course, when they're going through the treatments and going through these things. And then they're, they're not taken care of. This is just crazy to me that we need people to step in to take care of them, that we as a society aren't already doing that, uh, I, I think is very mind boggling, illogical and in, inhumane and um, you know, we were talking earlier about the injustices and how, we, you know, we look back sometimes we think, oh, if I was around, I would have done this or I wish I was around during, you know, Hitler's time in Germany to stand up. First of all, it's not clear you would have been someone who stood up because most people didn't. Um, but so that's its own conversation. It's very easy in hindsight of 80 years to look back and say I would have done something differently. Um, but there's injustices happening around us today that are I don't want to compare them, but very illogical, inhumane and unjust and don't have to be. You don't need to go back 50 years to find injustices to do something about it. They're happening all around us all the time. We have to make sure we look, which means one, looking for them, not turning an eye, listen to people who are suffering and also pay more attention or try to shift our mindset and not just accept what has been said to be the realities of the world that oh things have to just be this way that's how it is in every generation the injustices that are happening are just somehow justified as somehow right this is how it's supposed to be uh, or things can't change this is how it's going to always be to some degree and then things do change so we have to face the discomforts of looking at the world in a way that makes us realize it's not all good and it's up to us to do something about it. So I know um, it was just a three-word question, money and happiness, but um, wanted to share some thoughts on that. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Um, hello, it's me you're yes. talking to yes hi thanks for calling yeah, hi hi do you hear me well i do yes okay thank you uh i'm calling from london i had called you many months ago um about my son he was at the time 28 and i was worried about his um ideas about the harm this 5g was causing uh-huh. and um basically i was despairing didn't know what to do um i also called your father at some other time and um, unfortunately um, I didn't get the help that I wanted not not to blame anybody basically my question was not something you or anybody could answer and at mm-hmm. the time I was asking shall I continue with my support including financial support or not in order to push him out and for him to go and seek a job and uh, you know hopefully that would lead to change of lifestyle um, anyway, I then dis- decided that I shouldn't do that after uh, speaking to a clinical psychologist, a lady a clinical psychologist. She said, no, um, don't do that. Um, just just support him and um, try to seek, uh, you know, advice um, and, and try to get him to talk to somebody, to a clinical psychologist and see where it goes. So I then also based on advice that I had uh, received from your father quite rightly that I should talk to a clinical psychologist, prepare him, get the background, and then get him to talk to him, and then hope for the best. I did that, and unfortunately, it came to a dead end. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, now my question to you is, shall I continue pretending that um, everything is okay, or shall I start a conversation that uh, he's got some kind of mental condition, and 
um, basically, even though he's going to resist that, uh, prepare him and just see, you know, where I get with that. So that was just a general, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah. general basically, yeah. <laughs> background. But uh, obviously, if you want me to give details, you know, you ask me questions. Sure. I mean, and I felt in that sigh you just made, I, I, I can imagine this is such a challenging issue. I, I remember you calling and even from my own memory and just because maybe someone obviously was not tuning in then, it might be good to fill in the picture a little bit more about the situation. But I do remember sure. um, the, uh, you know, your son who at 28, maybe now he's 29, but he um, was having some beliefs that seemed a bit bizarre or um, yes. what we'd consider out of touch with reality, which might be delusional, which could be part of some kind of psychosis. It's hard to give a diagnosis just based on some of those facts but um, and you were in the very challenging position that many parents find themselves of, of kids of all ages but even especially with adult kids whether we're talking about addiction issues or mental health issues of how do I help them do I continue supporting them um, or would that maybe enable them and it would be better to put some pressure on them to then maybe create some kind of change or force them to, to make a change. And the line is almost always going to be blurry or gray when we're talking about something like this, as far as what's going to be the the exact right thing to do. There's not going to be a recipe that's going to say, if you do this, exactly something good is going to happen. Because sadly, of course, you're going to do everything you can. But one, he has to... Uh, do most of the work or really basically all of the work you might just support or get him started on something let's say and the second part which is unfortunate but we sometimes have to accept that things might not get so much better and I'm not saying just accept it and give up but we do have to be aware that sometimes a situation can be very bad and there there is only so much we can do and it might not get better it might stay the same or might stay uh, in kind of the same range of things so we, we do have to be aware of those possibilities as well which i know is not very encouraging or um, doesn't feel so good but it is part of the potential reality so if you could fill me in a bit about how, in general sure. what's going on um, but also recently what's been happening and and what you're trying to do at this point sure uh, firstly um, and you, your your memory is brilliant yes uh, you basically remember um what uh, happened, it was just with the onset of the crisis, COVID mm-hmm. crisis, that he just went upside down because up to that point, he had behaved normally, you know, like teenagers and young people in their 20s, gone through uni, gone traveling for two years, coming back, doing a few things here and there, and even did a master in a subject which was totally not his degree subject, but because he said that he was interested in uh, digital production and sound, so he got his master in sound engineering despite the fact that that wasn't the subject of his degree and he did very well uh, but suddenly with this COVID it just went mm-hmm. totally uh, you know he, he just changed basically yeah. and uh, at the time he was just so obsessed about this uh, harm from 5G he bought uh, these um, vests and hats made of silver threads mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and even um, something like a canopy to go over his bed but that, 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 you know, after a while he gave up. Uh, but he has become progressively, maybe not progressively, but as I find out about more and more things, even though we talk very little, I find that, that uh, he has been, uh, he has become and becoming more and more cynical about everything. He's so negative. 
he, he, he believes that we've been misled about everything in medicine, in science. In, it, it's just so bad. Um, he, he's given up on the, we were vegetarians, we started, but you know, we would eat fish now. He doesn't eat fish. He doesn't eat, he, he's excluded dairy. He, he's losing weight. The only thing that uh, he's doing normal is going to his studio for, for his work, recording and uh, producing sound and music. But his lifestyle is such that it's worrying in itself, which is partially why I wanted, you know, I had this question whether I should push him out and make him get a normal job and, you know, have a more normal kind of lifestyle. Uh, he, he works until very late uh, night, you know, early hours in the morning. He wakes, he comes home, he sleeps um, very late. He wakes up midday and he has some breakfast and he goes to the studio and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, sorry, do you have a question? No, no, go ahead. Yeah, and then um, after speaking to this, um, the first clinical psychologist, just for myself, woman to woman, she said, I said, what do I do? Do I continue or do I stop? She said, no, continue your support in every sense, including uh, financial support. And I just had one session and I decided that was my motherly instinct anyway, and I have been continuing with that. And at the moment, I have no question about that, which was my original question to you mm-hmm. and to your father. My question now is that after having come to a dead end, oh, yeah, after that, I then found, I went through, you know, going so many, you know, clinics and psychologists, recommendations, this and that. And I chose somebody that I thought was the best clinical psychologist that I could talk to mm-hmm. and prepare him to and then get my son to, uh, you know, prepare my son to have a session with him. So I had the, um, I had two sessions with him myself. Each session, uh, first session 90 minutes, second session 60 minutes. I gave all the background, and um, meanwhile, I, after the first session, I was talking to my son. You know, I would like us to work on our mother-son relationship, and he said, "Okay, I do it for you." And I thought, "Okay, so that that was a good start. We can start him on that, and then see where it leads." Then I had the second session with the psychologist, and I said, well, he is ready. I want to give you more background. And um, and then I had that session. Meanwhile, my son was still, you know, okay with that. Then um, I was asking him a question back to the psychologist, uh, saying, oh, I forgot to ask. Shall I, shall I just, you know, shall I just say that he should have a session on his own or with me or what's the best thing? And he was not very helpful you know instead of answering my question in one line he said no you have to have another session so then i had another session and uh, he said um just say that it, it is about the um the, the mother's son but he should have a session on his own and then we see how it goes and then i join if and when so then we arranged another 90 minutes for my son and i you know i was like really really praying if there's you know if praying has got any effect that you know and and beforehand i had asked this psychologist i'm really really wanting you to sort of gain his trust no matter how many sessions no matter what you say so that uh, it would lead to more sessions and it would lead to some something so um apparently after the first 65 minutes there was nothing to say and um so they that, that was that and then i um he had told me that he would not reveal anything from what the conversation mm-hmm. they had to me and I said yes I understand that's the ethical um, yeah. you know requirement and I would not expect you to uh, you know tell me anything that you 
having conversation with my son. Um, but then um, I said, okay, so my son thinks now we're going to have a session together. Do you think, and this is now with email, and he is not responding to email. It has to go through the secretary. Mm-hmm. So I said to, to him, you know, could you, you know, I would write to the secretary saying, could you pass it to, the, to, to Dr. X, whatever. And I said to him, uh, now, now that we're going to have a session together, do you think there is any hope that either after this session or after many other sessions that we have, you think you can lead the conversation to the direction that you can address some of my son's cynicism and stuff like that? And then instead of getting a positive response, he said through the secretary that he's not going to see us anymore. And I'm like, what? Hmm. I'm like heartbroken. That was the only chance I had after having done so much. And I'm now going through the complaint procedure, uh, not because of the money I spend, which is a good amount for the Mm -hmm. hourly they charge, but the way that he just discharged us just because this innocent question that all along it was known and I had three sessions with him saying what the intention was. Now, it might and it might not have... giving me any reason. Yeah, I can see how that's frustrating. I, 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 we only have a few minutes, so I, I don't mean to cut you off, but, you know, it's not clear if that's why he didn't respond. I, I know the timing looks that way, but maybe there was just... What you are describing is a complicated setup where you see him, then you see him with um, your son, uh, it, it, and then you want your son to see him separately. It, it's a little bit complex, and, and I, I would... I'm sorry to interrupt you, Dr. Yeah. Farid. You're absolutely right. I don't mean I shouldn't have complained you know, in, in that kind of length to you. My question, I know you, there's not much time. Sure. My question to you is, shall I start the conversation gradually and very gently with him that there is this possibility that he's got this disorder or just continue pretending everything is okay? Well, I don't know if you have to pretend. Um, you, you know, I think we talked about it last time, too, that I don't think you have to necessarily say, yes, I think the 5G... Uh, satellite uh, towers are causing COVID or whatever you know he he believes you don't have to agree with him you can actually say I don't know if I see it that way um, but I think actually to keep the conversation or your relationship with him I wouldn't just tell him oh you're you're being you know this is wrong and keep disagreeing with him either because you're not going to convince someone who's believing as strongly as you're describing him just by what we you might think is logic or it doesn't make sense um, but I would continue the conversation with him about how he's doing and not say, well, you're going to go because if he thinks you're going to send me to a psychologist to change my mind about these conspiracies, you know, he won't call them conspiracies, but these things I believe or that I know to be true, he's not going to want that. But if he doesn't feel good, uh, as I always tell parents, you want to meet him at his pain. So if he's not happy or doesn't feel good, you know, you can say a, a psychologist might help you. Um, you know, so you feel better. You deserve to feel better than you do right now. So I wouldn't try to convince him. And what you're dealing with, which is hard, is he doesn't have what we'd call insight, meaning that he's not aware that there's something wrong with how he's thinking. He thinks he's right. Whereas, let's say, sometimes when someone is depressed, they realize, oh, I'm feeling really down. I need some help. The The problem Absolutely. is he doesn't he see a problem. Enlightened and yeah. all of us, we don't know. Right. So, and that's why the to, to try to really convince him um, I don't think you're going to really uh, get so far into trying to prove to him that he's wrong. If anything, you might just keep his beliefs or make them stronger and just damage your relationship with him. So I would focus if it's he was was he open to seeing a psychologist, your son? He was open to coming to that session? Only, only yeah, 
because he thought he, he you know it was to work on our relationship yeah. mother son relationship so and that's and that could be a starting point but you know clearly your mindset is i just want to get him in the door of therapy and and I understand your desperation and I understand you wanting to help him, but I'm just also letting you know, if I was in that situation, someone said, I, I get it, just have my son come in the door and it's going to help. You know, it it's not just like a, a magic trick that once they're in the room of a psychologist, he's going to change. He might not even be open to therapy at all for himself. So I get the desperation and the sense that, well, if he has a mental health problem, he needs to see a mental health professional, which is right. But if he has no level of accepting what's going on to himself, he's not going to likely even get anything from therapy. So just sitting in that room for an hour probably won't change him at all and um, make any difference. Medication is probably going to be likely, but that's going to be very tough when he, again, we're saying you need medication to change the things you believe that he himself thinks are actually right and that you're wrong about that's not likely either unfortunately so it, it is very hard i would try to get him to get help but one i wouldn't say it's because the things you think are scaring me or i don't think they're true um it, it should be more in the sense of if he seems unhappy or not okay that you, well, you he get doesn't well, or, or at least he says that he's perfectly happy okay even though he doesn't look happy to me, but anytime he says no, I'm the happiest I've ever been. Okay, well, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't resist that too so. much. Yeah, and again, because of the time, I'm, I'm just gonna make it brief. But I, I wouldn't try to convince him. No, you're unhappy because that's also not gonna work. But if he shares any times when he isn't okay, that's where you want to. And and maybe it is going in together. But you know, you're you're also have to recognize you're trying to get him in the door to, in a way, not trick him, but oh, it's about me and you, but really it's about him, and it's likely that that won't work. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it or shouldn't try to just get him to, to go to therapy. And even actually working on your relationship with him is important. So I, I would try to find someone else and, and see, well, it didn't work there. And I don't know. I would hope you can get an answer from the therapist. Maybe there was some reason he discharged. I don't know if it was just that email. If it's what you described, that likely wasn't enough. But um, I do have to go because I'm over the time now. But I hope we can okay. talk again because I know this is a brief appreciate conversation. That. Thank you so much. Best of luck to you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Um, thank you to the caller there and to the listeners. Also, a big thank you again to Dr. Joy DeGruy for joining me on the show today. And as always, a big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. Have a wonderful day.